What's the name of your podcast? Psychosis. Like, psychosis, because we're sisters. Welcome back, guys. Welcome to Psychosis. It's Kimberly and this is Mary. I hope everybody is having a great week. The date of this recording is September 26th and CrimeCon Orlando just happened this past weekend. So fun. My sister and I have been talking about going for years now. And honestly, I thought this would be the year, but then I had class this weekend and so we couldn't make it work, but maybe next year. And it's also getting further and further away. Like Vegas was very close to us and now it's in Orlando. So maybe if they bring it back to Vegas or if they bring it to LA. That would be awesome. Also, I don't feel like we can get much further than Florida. So (laughs) hopefully they bring it to the West Coast. Yes, this is true. And I know they also do the Crime Con cruise, right? Does that not sound a little sketch? (laughs) Not something the worst possible Does idea. Does that not sound like it's going to be its own podcast episode? <laughs> it does. Hopefully not, but it does not sound like people thought that one through very well. Not at all. So if you went to CrimeCon this year or any of the previous years, we are interested to know what your experience has been like. Is it worth it? Is it not worth it? I feel like it's probably worth it. It's, it's going to be worth it. Totally. Let us know on Instagram or email because I'm super curious. Today, I am bringing you another, I'm calling it a hometown-ish murder case. So we covered a case from where we grew up on our second podcast. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, we highly suggest it. It was the Gypsy Hill Killer. And it was a pretty big case. My sister also covered a Grass Valley case where she currently is. And so it was my turn to do my current hometown. My sister sent me this case, was like, this is perfect. I was just trying to be on top of it and be efficient and I dropped the ball. Dropped the ball a little bit. A little bit. Just a little. So she sends me this case and I'm like, perfect. I'm going to start doing it. I get two paragraphs into my research and I'm like, let me see exactly where this girl went to high school. And turns out my sister sent me a case for Santa Clara, California and not Santa Clarita, which (laughs) I found hilarious. Because they are so similar, but they are about six hours apart from one another. Yeah. I mean, Santa Clara is close to where we grew up, kind of. It really is. So that's why I didn't feel, you know, too bad doing this case because we grew up 30 minutes away from where all of this happened. So it's still a hometown murder, but just not where I currently live. So we will get there. Yeah, it's still on the theme. It's still on the theme. It still is on the theme. Um. And by the time I was like already two paragraphs in, I thought this case was already really interesting. And it was one I had actually never heard of. So I was like, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And I don't think you've heard of it either. You're welcome. Thank you. So here we go. So Mary Elizabeth Quigley was born on February 28th, 1960. 
She was born in Tucson, Arizona, and at some point moved to California, and that's where they settled. Her friends and family said she was a beautiful and loving girl, and after her death, her friends created a plaque at the location of where she was murdered, and they never quit looking for her killer. Mary was a senior at Santa Clara High School and was 17 years old at the time of her murder. On the evening of September 9th, 1977, Mary was picked up by a male friend from her house on her motorcycle, and he drove him to a party at a house held at the corner of Monroe and Market Street. The party was actually inside of a barn behind the house of another male teen. So this was just like kind of a hangout spot that all the teens went to. It was like a cool barn behind someone's house, which honestly, for one, to be picked up on a motorcycle at 17 just sounds like really fun and really cool. You could tell that like, she was the it girl. She was fun. She was popular. And honestly, I would have thrived to be her in high school. I was just going to say, this sounds like somebody that you would have run with. <laughs> or at least <laughs> wanted to run with. But says the girl who was in a field on a Friday night. In a field on a Friday night. I don't know how you weren't in fields on Friday nights, honestly. It was at home. This was a house that the teens often partied at, so it wasn't out of the norm, and it was actually located across the street from an athletic field near the high school. Mary was seen around 9 p.m. outside of the driveway of the barn in the house talking with four males. Three of those four men were described as wearing derby jackets, and the fourth was described as wearing a Pendleton tee. They were able to say that they knew Mary had left before midnight, but they weren't sure on the exact time that she had left the party and that it could have been as early as 10 or 10.30 p.m. The guy who lived in the house that was in front of the barn was actually expecting Mary to come over and hang out that night. But by the time he got to his own party, she wasn't there anymore. He had work. And so I guess like all the teens just felt really comfortable going there and hanging out, even though he wasn't there, which is awesome. So this was his barn? Yeah, like it was a barn located across, uh, right behind his house. So I'm not sure if it was like part of his house or just a barn that happened to be there that all the teens just went to. I mean, that sounds really fun. I know, it sounds so fun. It was confirmed that he was not one of the four men seen speaking to her in the driveway. So it was confirmed that he was not there at all at the same time that she was. Sometime between 10 p.m. and midnight, so within a two-hour window on the evening of September 9th, a woman living nearby was awakened by a barking dog and a girl screaming. She got up and she looked out her window and she saw what appeared to be a girl yelling at four guys who were trying to get her into their car. She was screaming that she didn't want to go with them and that they were saying things back to her, like, come on, you'll enjoy it. The witness said she noticed three of the men were wearing derby jackets. She could not tell what the fourth was wearing, but it was possibly a Pendleton shirt. So basically matching the description of the four men she was talking to in the driveway. That totally gave me chills. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super creepy. The woman then saw a car pull up full of girls and they asked if she was okay she they asked if she wanted to hop in their car and the girl who had been screaming at the men respectfully declined but like honestly good for them for you know trying to intervene and trying to help her yeah definitely eventually the boys were heard saying let's get the hell out of here and they sped away 
The witness stepped away from the window, but when she looked back out, everybody was gone. She was 99% sure it was Mary. However, she could not be certain. And she also told authorities she would not be able to identify the men if she ever saw them again. I think it was just like too dark out and she didn't want to, you know, ID somebody and it'd be the wrong person by mistake. Also, if this story, I don't know if the story was like in the media at all, but you would think if it was, somebody would come forward and say that, you know, it was, it was me and I was fighting with somebody, but since nobody did, it just seems like it probably was her. Exactly. The next day on September, 1977, around noon, a groundskeeper arrived to what was Washington Park, but is now called War Memorial Park, and discovered Mary's body. So I'm going to read this verbatim from the trial transcript, but her body was held in a sitting position with one sleeve of her jacket wrapped around her neck and the other sleeve tied to a cyclone fence by the ballpark adjacent to the high school. Her jeans were tied to her left wrist and her underpants were inside one leg of the jeans. A purse was lying on top of the jeans with its handle and contents in the grass. Her undamaged blouse and bra were 16 and a half feet from the fence with the bra looped around the inside out arm of the blouse. Her socks and shoes were on her feet. She had grass or twigs in her hair, on her chest, and underneath the ligature and necklace around her neck. There was blood dripping from her chest, visible marks on her face, neck, shoulders, and around her breasts, and live ants on her face, neck, and back. Tire tire tracks were found in the grass leading up to the fence, but no drag marks were visible. So That is rough. Wait, how far was this from where the witness saw someone fighting? So this was actually... I believe 900 yards away. So really close. So you would think if something obviously that was very traumatic happened to somebody that you would hear more screaming or more fighting or so that's, that's interesting that nobody heard anything. It is. And it's really gruesome the way she was. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So an autopsy was performed the next day on September 11th. And it revealed that Mary had no genital, vaginal, or anal injuries, but there was semen found inside of her that indicated she had had sex within 72 hours of her death happening. However, they were unable to determine in the autopsy if the sex was consensual or not. The detective submitted the DNA evidence to the Santa Clara Crime Lab for DNA analysis, but no match was found. And I do want to note that there was DNA found inside of her and other unknown DNA found in her underwear. So it was two separate, belonging to two separate people. And the autopsy states that the semen that was found in her underwear did not come from any of the men that was talking to her at her at the party. So they took DNA, I'm guessing from every male that was at that party. And it was not a match to anybody in her close life. So friends or family or anybody at the party. Oh, wow. Okay. And the autopsy did state that because the semen 
found on Mary's underwear did not match the, the semen that was found inside of her, it was concluded that the semen in her was deposited after her underwear was removed. And because she was not found wearing underwear, it was never placed back on her. And that's how they were able to determine that the semen inside of her was probably done not consensually. And it was after the fact? And it was after the fact that the underwear were removed, not necessarily after the right. fact that she was dead. So yeah. it wasn't prior to the party. So it wasn't 72 hours prior. No, it was, uh, no, because the semen was not in her underwear. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So they were able just to determine that the two semen samples found were from two different individuals and likely that the semen found inside of her was due to a rape. That is a lot of connecting the dots. It is. (laughs) And it's also scary to think that like, had the killer put her underwear back on her, that possibly they would have never been able. Yeah, it could have gotten mixed up and cross-contaminated in a way. Exactly. That's so wild that it wasn't the, sorry. That's so wild it wasn't any match for anybody at the party. It's almost like she may have been safer going home with those people that she was fighting with. Mm -hmm. That's just such a scary thought. Exactly. Um, away from something when it ended up even worse and eventually I believe they were able to identify the four men that were speaking to her and I'm going to leave their names out their names are in the trial transcript but I'm sure that, that nobody wants their names public so I have the names of I believe four or five individuals including the male who owned the house that was in front of the barn but I'm not going to say their names Mary's cause of death was strangulation by ligature, and her injuries were consistent with having been strangled from behind as she attempted to escape and fight off her attacker. She did try to claw at the ligature and was tied to the fence after her death. Strangulation is, as you know, people who are super into true crime know, one of the longest ways that you can possibly kill somebody it's a very like slow form of murder and it truly hurts my heart to think how mary must have felt in those final moments and how scared she must have been especially like having to already if it was her who was fighting off those four other men already have to deal with that scenario get away from it and then run into her killer the autopsy revealed that the markings on her legs abdomen breasts and face were consistent with post-mortem ant feeding. Oof, that sounds awful. That is so sad. It's very sad. And she was found, you know, fairly quickly within what, less than 24 hours after this party. So it's just terrifying to think that it happens that quick. Yeah, definitely. So Mary's case eventually went cold and it remained cold for 30 years. In 2005, Detective Sergeant Kazim submitted evidence from Mary's case again to the crime lab in Santa Clara for DNA analysis. And six months later, on December 27, 2006, the crime lab informed Sergeant Kazim that a computer database searched for DNA came back with a hit. Oh boy. Yep. So <laughs> here we go. Hit. Here we go. The hit came back as a known offender 
and Santa Clara resident, Richard Armand Archebeck. I believe that's how we're pronouncing his name. Honestly, it's okay if we're pronouncing it wrong because he's a piece of shit. Um, <laughs> and turns out he was actually one of Mary's classmates. Oh Richard was a divorced father of one and had been working as a handyman at the time that he was arrested. He had actually spent three years in prison for raping and kidnapping a girl in 1979. So Wait, if he was her classmate, mm-hmm. you already did time. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. How old was he when he was in jail? Yep, you're 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 on to exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> Why didn't they figure this out 30 years ago? I mean, yeah. Like if he's a known offender in the area who was a classmate of hers. Oh, I know. So <laughs> uh oh my gosh. So to answer you, the only thing I could find on this was a quote that said, This is an issue where people are remaining in custody who shouldn't be. And people who should be in custody are out on the streets. So they never really said, you know. That was just like a giant nothing burger. Like, uh, like yeah, okay. But why did he, why was there never like a red flag? Like, like maybe we should look into this guy. Like offenders in the area or offenders that are in her school. Uh, that went to jail for raping somebody. <laughs> I completely agree. Telling you we should have been detectives. I know, we really should have. So yeah, Richard has spent three years in prison for raping a girl in 1979, just two years after the murder of Mary. I'm going to mention this case briefly. I'm not going to go into too much detail. All of this information I found in the trial transcripts, but on July 14th, 1979, A young girl was walking home in Santa Clara near the railroad tracks by Lafayette Street. Just as she made her way across the tracks, Richard approached her where he then grabbed her around her neck, held her in a headlock and pulled her through a hole that was in a fence. He threatened her and told her not to scream and she did scream and that made Richard angry. So he stuck a washcloth in her mouth. He pushed her to the ground near the fence, keeping his hand on her throat. The victim, who we only know as MP, said that she had never seen Richard before. He then began to touch her and rape her. And once he was done, this time he did not finish inside of her, but rather on her stomach and decided to go through her belongings where he discovered her driver's license and that she was only 16 years old. Oh, no. So I believe Richard would have been about 21 around this time or 20. So he was clearly over 18 and the victim MP was only 16 and this freaked him out. He began to apologize profusely to her. Oh yeah, that'll do it. Right? Like, thanks. (laughs) Sorry for, sorry for raving you and almost killing you. Exactly. But he also threatened that if she went to the police, he was going to find her and kill her because he knew where she lived based off her license. He also told her his name and where he lived. Okay. Well, girl, you better run straight to the police. Right? Like, (laughs) 
this guy clearly did not know yeah. out who he was, where he lived, apologized, thinking that'll do it. Luckily, MP was very brave and calm and started to speak to him kindly and told him that what he had done was no big deal and not to worry about it, that she wasn't going to do anything. So he let her go and she ran home. Smart girl. Very smart. She did not report the crime right away. She did wait until the next morning because she was shaken up and terrified, but she did go in and report it. And at some point he was spoken to where he denied the rape. He told police that it was consensual, but he was eventually convicted of the rape. Wait, hold on. Is there such thing as consensual sex with a minor? I don't know what the Californian laws are. Like, I'm pretty sure it's under 18, but I'm not sure if 16 is age of consent. Do you know? I'm going to ask Google. Age of consent in California. 18. Okay. So no, there is no such thing. This is the definition of age of consent in California. If someone engages in sexual activity with a minor under the age of 18, they can be charged with statutory rape. Okay, so he clearly didn't have a lot of brain cells. No, but um, did the police not arrest him right away? No, they arrested him and he oh, was okay. convicted of rape. And upon his release from prison, he had to register as a sex offender and submit his DNA. So his DNA was in the database. For 30 years. For, yeah, almost 30 years. And I don't know how the DNA database works. Does this not, like, set off a bell? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, this whole time I was, like, researching this case, I was just thinking, like, how did they not connect the dots? Like, this guy went to the same school that Mary went to, was her classmate, raped another student, and it was, like... Two years later, right? Two years later. So... Okay. And the crime scene was very similar to that of Mary's. It was at night. There was a fence involved. He took off all her clothes. He raped her? He raped her. He tried to strangle her. Yeah. I'm assuming this is all Santa Clara. So I'm assuming this is all the same police department yeah, I, I just I just don't understand how things like that fall through the cracks especially when they're so similar and they're, it's literally right in front of your face and nope okay carry on so after 30 years and three days of deliberation a jury found Richard guilty for the murder of Mary Quigley on March 2nd, 2009, he was scheduled for sentencing on March 27th, and under 1977 guidelines, he received seven years to life. Seven years? Seven years. For a murder? For a murder. So if you murdered somebody before 1970-whatever, <laughs> you just get seven years? I what guess year? there was some 1977 guideline, maybe it was like statute of limitations. So he did try to appeal it and luckily it was denied, but you kind of killed someone. So yeah, ridiculous. 
obviously he's the kind of person who would be a repeat offender if you let them out because he did this before. I wonder if he had done it other times too that just were never caught because that seems like a very aggressive thing to do just twice in two years and then never do it again for three and then never do it again that just seems I don't know yeah like it's a one-time or two-time thing to just happen to be in a dark place and try to rape someone I mean I'm sure there were more times that he did it and got away with it and even when you so it does look like he's still in jail and when you google his name it the first article that pops up is accused killer overlooked despite clues. Um, yeah, y'all dropped the ball big time. Completely. <sighs> I'm going to send you a picture of Mary right now. She was gorgeous. You should have got it. Oh, so pretty. And here is a picture of the plaque that her friends put up for her right after she died at the fence and here is Richard oh god (laughs) oh Richard he looks absolutely disgusting that's just so gross a juror member who decided to remain anonymous said it was the DNA evidence of Richard Seaman that made the five women and seven men jury convict him. Friends well, from, huh? Just going to say, well, that's kind of an obvious, I mean, if there's, it's, there's DNA. Like, how do you even say it couldn't be a possibility if there's. I, a couple of her friends did show up to court to hear the verdict. And they said over the years, it haunted us. One of the friends kept the case alive by creating the MaryQuigley.net website, which offered rewards for information to help solve her murder. The men broke down in tears when the verdict was read and said, Mary was magical. There was just something special about her. Ironically, they also knew Richard back from high school and said that he was strange. He was a loner who just did not fit in. He went on to say in eighth grade, He would be sitting in class and he would pull out one of his eyeballs and play with it on his desk. Excuse me? (laughs) You're like, (laughs) I thought you were going to say like he pulls out his hair or pulls out his eyelashes. I'm wait, I'm sorry. His eyeball? Yeah, I probably shouldn't have casually just said that without an explanation. (laughs) But I guess Richard apparently lost his eye. Oh, okay. As in we're playing with BB guns. And so he would just pull out this fake eye and play with it on his desk. That's still weird, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> Super weird. So he already had a stigma before high school even began as just being like the weird loner kid. Mary's mother, Janice Goodman, said that she sat through two and a half weeks of the trial and listened to 25 witnesses recall events from the 1970s, which honestly is amazing if you can recall events that long ago. I mean, I can't remember what I did yesterday. Seriously. Same here. She did not have any tears. She just felt relief. She said, I am so grateful that the police in our society did not forget and did not quit looking. She went on to say, I know what happened and that's more than I ever knew before. So that is the case of Mary Elizabeth Quigley. Very sad, very senseless. 
And at least there was closure with that one. I mean, there's so many cases where families don't get closure and I'm very happy she was able to get closure, the family, even though it was they you know, kind of dropped the ball big time, but you know, better late than never, I guess. Although I believe her dad did pass away in the, oh, that's so, so, bad. so he never got the closure. He didn't. So thank you for sending me this case, Mary. You're welcome. I also overlooked that it was the wrong city, but it's off by like what? Two letters. Yeah, but I have never heard of it. So it's actually really interesting. I have never heard of it either. And I Googled the location and I think it was literally 30 minutes from us. So it's still a hometown case. Yeah, see? Thank you so much for listening to this case and coming down the rabbit hole with us again. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at psychosis underscore podcast where you can DM us a California case that you would like us to cover and we will look into it. You can also email us at the psychosis podcast at gmail.com and request case that way and send us your crime con experiences. If you have, I want to go, I want to go. go so bad. We need to go. Look, they haven't had it in California. yet. California is like a true crime hub. So why not? They got to bring it here eventually. I feel like California has to be next. It has to be LA or San Francisco. Fingers crossed. Which I say, let's go. Let's go. CrimeCon 2024, California. Let's do it. CrimeCon listeners. Manifest that. Huh? Manifest that. Manifest that. Let's put in a request. If you work for CrimeCon, let's bring it to California. We got a lot of crime over here. It's really <laughs> it's really expensive to host conventions here, so I get that. But also, like, we could use the boost over here. California struggling. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. Bye. Bye.